0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: If you will permit me, I will begin to introduce the Jonathan's original question to just do a a bit of an introduction to chapter 2. In chapter 2, there's two ways of classifying the body here. And he notes in the beginning of chapter 2 that there is the divided body, and this is, you know, the the body might be circumcised or uncircumcised. So when we say divided body, it's first of all referring to that Jew-Gentile divide, in Ephesians later, he's going to talk about male and female. In other places in Galatians, he talks about the bodily division between male and female. But the, the point in both instances, he's the division marks, it, it, you know, circumcision is clearly the mark of the law on the flesh, on the body. And uncircumcision is a mark on the body. That is that the flesh bears meaning that it's written over quite literally with a sign. It's the imposition of a sign system on the biological body, so that we're really no longer talking about a biological body. You know, even the terms male and female, I think that, you know, Paul is going to say we're no longer male and female in Christ. I don't think he's saying that we're biologically, you know, erasing our gender But he's describing that the meaning or the signs that might be attached to slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, that cultural inscription is no longer definitive. And the idea with circumcision and uncircumcision is that it's a binary. It is certainly physical, but it's also the division you know, Jew, Gentile, but he also notices in 2 3, he also talks about a division between mind and flesh. He, as in Romans 7, he's talking about a division that runs through each of us, uh, it runs through us corporately, and that it marks us all. That is, that there's a sign system, there's the, the, you know, if we want to call it the law. And I, I, Paul refers to this as the enmity of the flesh. But, of course, the flesh is not the problem. And that's, you know, if uh, because Christ is going to destroy this enmity in his own flesh. So the problem is not the flesh, but I think the problem is the semantic load invested in the flesh. And so Paul de- is describing a kind of semantics of the flesh in a series in, in chapter 2. Death reigned due to people conforming to the world. Wink calls this the domination system or the system of redemptive violence. And what I'm about to do is to take that even further. That Zizek will describe it as redemptive violence that it's inscribed deep within every human psyche in that the sacrifice of the empirical body, the the biological body, is paid for, he says, by entry into the symbolic order. I'll run that down here in a minute. So that Paul speaks of a lust of the flesh, but notice this lust is already an antagonism between mind-body, between mind-flesh. So there's an antagonism, uh, you know, in Wink's description, a sacrificial economy, even Rene Girard, I think, ties in here that it predominates in culture, redemptive violence, in culture and religion. And this is Rene Girard's depiction of all religion, uh, except he's saying New Testament Christianity. He would even relate it to the Old Testament. And so we can read Christianity as fitting into a support, I mean, this is the unfortunate thing, with penal substitution. We're just repeating redemptive violence in Christianity oh, now it's Christ who is the scapegoat or it's Christ that you know is paying the, the penalty uh, But I think the same thing in other words in in what wink is calling the subordination system or the the domination system, I I just happen to think that the role of male female is always plays out in this. That is the do, the a patriarchal or the the uh, the abuse of women. The male dominance you know male over female uh, I, I that certainly is there marked in genesis as the naming of you know the curse that's not that's not, god isn't saying oh this thing's a good thing he you know he will have dominance over you no i think he's describing the problem and that's still the problem and unfortunately the church is is a major participant in that problem of a kind of patriarchal uh, dominance over women but uh, as Wake brings it out you could tie it into the whole family system and so there's a definitive economy that is being described here that is going to be resolved in christ or in the flesh of christ so in 122 actually he says that you know this is what we've just been talking about He subjected all things under his feet. I think this domination system is what is is being undone, this sacrificial system, that in his body, and isn't it interesting that we return to the use of the language of body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so the unity of the body is achieved in the incarnation. And what body? Well, I think all of these bodies that we've been talking about the corporate body, the individual body, the male-female body, the circumcised, uncircumcised body, that these dualisms, or if you want to talk about a kind of Gnostic antagonism, that it's overcome. And so in a strange way, you know, what is it that we talk about the incarnation of Christ? But maybe Christ is really the first incarnate human being. That is that our tendency is toward a kind of disincarnateness, an abandonment of the body, an antagonism toward the body. And uh, I, uh, some of you, you've heard my the psychoanalytic understanding of this. Uh, you know, Lacan, Jacques Lacan, Slavoj Zizek are just developing a Pauline understanding. And what they're doing, they're taking Paul's three categories in Romans 7, that is psychoan- psychoanalysis as we have it. They're 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 both Freudian, by the way, but they're they're doing Freud in a particular way. You know, in Freud, there's the ego, the superego, and the id. Uh and Lacan just well, you know, ego is just Paul's word in Romans seven. Ego, it's just I. Uh, the name for this in uh, Freud, ego, and then in Lacan and Zizek, they call it the imaginary and what they mean by imaginary is this is not a substantial or real structure this is a an imagined thing this is a projected thing so when we talk about the death of the i uh, it's not the undoing of a substantial or, or reality that is the defeat of the ego is a defeat of a lie as you put it jonathan and then the law or the superego could be the, the in lacan Zizek, this just becomes the symbolic order. Just I think that we can use Paul's word law, symbolic order. It, it all means the same thing. And we're, what we're talking, we're describing the structure of an individual, but we're also describing, you know, the, the individual is made up of this tripartite self. that we're going to fill this in and we're going to describe it in a different fashion. But here we're describing, uh, the individual as as uh, pitted against himself And the third one is maybe the most mysterious. You know, Freud just called it the it, the id in German, you know, and all he's just saying, it's a, it's this thing that we really can't talk about. Lacan and Zizek are going to call it the real. And this is perhaps the most obscure, but I think in Paul, and, and this is what Zizek is saying, this is just the biological body. So in the most mysterious thing is actually the most concrete thing that we really don't have, once the, the body is written over with the law, we really don't have access to the body per se, to the biological body. And so it's founded on what is really the, the mortal body, you know, that the, it is the, the biological body. It's the bare reality of the body. Laid over with circumcision, uncircumcision, male, female, and I think even Jew, Jew, I think uh, I think all of those categories really are just kind of a description of a meaning system, a symbol system that's laid over the body, and so the original sacrificial system that is established within the you know this is the uh, mirror stage in psychoanalysis that between the imaginary eye the eye in the mirror that the child's entry into language is an entry into the symbolic order in which the law takes hold or the superego the symbolic that is that uh, you establish then a kind of alienated distance from yourself so that the passage from being a body you establish a kind of symbolic distance you have a body oh, my body's got a toothache. We really don't talk that way, but I think often we think that way as if we can, this is, I'm quoting Wittgenstein here, by the way, that this is kind of the linguistic turn is a recovery of the sense in which language is embodied. And that's the that's the significance of the, the linguistic turn. Term. In, in, uh, in terms of human personality, we are still caught up in this notion of having a body as if the body you know this is the cartesian the body is kind of an orthopedic extension a kind of mechanical thing and so self-consciousness arises with the realization of the refusal of the body uh you know sec this is castration uh this is the you know the castration complex in freud you know what is castration? What is the castration complex? Do you think that that might be connected to circumcision? Well, of course, that's the, the picture in the Old Testament is that circumcision is the mark of the sign that God has the power, and it's not the individual. That is, Abraham's going to trust in God, not in his own power for procreation. And so, the symbolic or the soul you know, normally, even in a child's entry into language is paid for then. But you lose that, you know, what is human desire, this kind of exponential desire? Biological needs are fairly straightforward. You know, I need to eat, uh, I need warmth, I need sex as a basic human drive. And all of these then get blown out of proportion. Uh, And I think that's what Paul's describing. And certainly, that's what You know that's what's being described in the psychoanalytic literature, and this is called jouissance in French. The idea that this is always a death-dealing, evil desire. So jouissance, I think, is very often Paul will use the word desire. uh, I think in the same way he doesn't. You know, in the Bible, you'll find different usages of the word desire. There is the sense that the subject turns away from the body and refuses to obey the body. And so this is the sense that there's two bodies in psychoanalysis. But I think there's two bodies in Paul. That is, there's the mind, there's the flesh, the body, you know, that is the subject that gives us problems is not really our biological body, psychoanalytically. It's the symbolic order that the body is written over with so that the unconscious most clearly speaks through our body in a strange way, you know, uh, through human desire. The innermost sanctum of the individual is this kind of fundamental, I think if we described it in Pauline terms, the attachment to the letter, the attachment to the law, the inscribing myself, interpolating myself into the law, or, you know, being uh, uh, that in some way, The law is enduring, the law is immortal, Uh, and one hastens to assume, you know, the attachment, you actually are assuming death in in a strange way, in inscribing yourself in the symbolic order, in in, in that that displaces, you know, that that is, I think, what Paul means, the letter kills, Uh, it's my epitaph, I don't know how significant you want to take the history of writing, but early writing very often was the writing on tombs and so i you assume the letter you assume death in order to avoid it the dead are immortal in a sense because they're no longer subject to dying and so paul describes this present tense resolution i think this is the problem at least this is illustrative of the problem that he's describing you know that christ defeats uh, that, that there's peace there is unity in the body of christ in christ's resurrection and ascension and our participation in that even when we were dead in our transgressions i think that that really means something that another name for this dynamic this economy jim is death death drive in freud but i think in the new testament death per se that is you jesus says you know you're the walking dead. Uh, And Paul is describing being dead in sin. And the resolution is being, you know, the passage we just read at the end of chapter one. So death is marked by division within the body, but Christ overcomes this division in and through his body. And our bodies are restored to a unity as bodies and not the empirical bearer of meaning. And so he doesn't use the the word flesh in his description of works, and I think that's significant. You know, what is the main work he's talking about? Well, circumcision. He just describes that in chapter 2. Circumcision, uncircumcision, marks all people. And uh, it's no longer through works of the law. It's no longer through the meaning that is born in and through the law. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is the gift, and then uh, I think he's attaching, you know, what is the work we're made for? I think the work we're made for, that's Paul's language, is the work of love. So this split in the body, this incapacity of the body, is an incapacity for love. That was that article, Jonathan, in a very brief introduction. I don't, does that totally confuse you or does that does that get it?
2: No, that, that's helpful. But uh, that's a heavy thing to get into for, you know, the, the psychoanalytic part of it, which I'm not real savvy on, but I, I'm understanding what you're saying, and it does help make sense to that, tying that into the New Testament ideas of how, of how Paul's addressing those same issues in terms of the flesh.
1: And if you don't buy it, I'll just think of it as an illustration. Paul must be talking about something, and what he's talking about must be something on the order that I'm describing, even if I, even if in the details, I think it is an, If for nothing else, psychoanalytic, a psychoanalytic understanding is illustrative of something like what Paul must be talking about. That we're dealing in death, that we're as good as dead in our transgressions, and we've been made alive in Christ. What I'm saying is, but then we can go through and tie all that Wink is doing in chapter two into this in ending the domination system in terms of male female in terms of family uh in terms of you know a kind of corporate understanding that we it's no longer our interpolation into the law i'll fill this out a little bit more next week i know that was that's kind of a lot ephesians the the passage here in chapter two He's using the exact same word in Ephesians 2 when he talks about abolishing in his flesh. The word is there in Romans, and the question is, you know, I think we the word abolish is probably the wrong word, and the, the idea that you get is suspension. You know, did, did Christ abolish the law? No, he didn't abolish the law. He suspended the... Ill effects of the law, and this is, by the way, I think the genius of Hegel. Luther is going to translate this word as "offeboon." The uh, in uh, Romans and Ephesians, the word is catargeo. You know, that's the word that gets translated "abolished." I think it's the wrong word because what is happening is this. This fits with Wink too, because it's not like he's a we're abolishing the principalities and powers. We're not abolishing the law, but we're suspending the oppressive effects of the law and of these principalities and powers. That then explains our relation. In other words, it's not like we can escape. The law in and of itself is not the problem, but it is our orientation to the law. What's the passage in
3: Romans where he uses that word?
1: Uh, Romans chapter he uses the word uh, katargeo seven one to three it's there he also uses it in chapter six Uh, he'll use it it's actually used several times there in chapter six and seven and so what we do with that term is is key in terms of our understanding of what salvation is and so even though what I just described I may have just may have been so weird for you but what I am describing is a system in which we can understand what is needed is not an abolishing of something paul is going to talk about the the breaking down of the wall of hostility he doesn't hesitate to talk about that but he also he's talking about a suspension of the antagonism of the hostility and so i think it's important how how we how we describe that jonathan absolutely clear in your mind now
2: i've I've got it a hundred percent wired i think
1: Okay. (laughs) All right. After reading Ephesians 1 and reviewing some of our ideas about what it is the gospel is addressing, that is atonement theory, what clues are there in this passage, that is in chapter 1, to addressing the idea of separation and reconciliation in chapter 1? And what is it that's being unified or what was separated? So what, let's start with the idea. What is it that's separated or that there's a division? How
4: does that function? Um, I focus on the end of Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer for the readers of this epistle, the church. And he ends it with a reference to Psalm 110. And that reference is talking about what God accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in heavenly places, far above rule, rule authority, and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only of this age, but also the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And and the the reference in there to, it's a Psalm 110. And so this is Psalm Jesus' references in Mark. And I think that are synoptics as well. It begins, the Lord being Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And it's a Psalm Maybe very well of, of Thanksgiving that Israel prayed for David, um, uh, but that the church turns into a song about the, a psalm and a, and a prayer about the Messiah coming, about a priestly figure who is seated at God's right hand, um, who shatters kings and chieftains of the world, and who judges the nations, and does so so that when he returns to God, God's people will be free to come worship him. And will freely offer themselves and worship to him. And so Paul picks this up in a couple different places here in Ephesians and also he deals with it a lot in 1st Corinthians. He picks it up at the, in Romans 8 as well and in um, Philippians and in Colossians. But in 1st Corinthians and here in Ephesians, I think he deals with it most significantly. He deals with it as, as the end, talking about the resurrection and what happens in the resurrection. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, he you know, goes through a couple arguments. You know, you say you, there's questions about whether Jesus was raised from the dead. And he says, first, well, these people saw it. Second, if he hadn't been raised from the dead, then, you know, we're blaspheming God. Third, we know he was raised from the dead because Israel has always prayed Psalm 110. And that Psalm says, the Lord will put all of his enemies, will make all of his enemies a footstool. And we know the resurrection will happen. Uh, because that has yet to happen that's going to happen. And so looking at the end, we know that Jesus is the first fruits, that when he comes again will be raised with him, and that eventually he will defeat his enemies, uniting all things to God, so God will be all in all. And then in first Ephesians, he pulls that vision of the end and the final resurrection back into the church itself. So in first Ephesians he uses psalm one ten, and connects it not only with things that are to come and what god has accomplished in jesus but also now what god is accomplishing with jesus in the church itself because it ends not looking at the end of all things but talking about how god has put all things under his feet and made Him the head over things for the church which is the body and fullness of all who fill him not only has this prayer of israel of a king coming uniting all things offering the world up to god after defeating his enemies come true but it's happening in time now through the church that is jesus's body making this happen he's pulling together god in heaven and the earth and uniting those two and what he's separating i'm not sure as much as you see in ephesians as in corinthians what he's separating is the enemy what he's separating in the psalm is the nations of the world that are to be judged the kings of the world uh, the principalities of the of this world what he's separating in first corinthians is the enemies of god the final enemy being death and i take that to be what he's separating out in the first ephesians 2 sin and death and the principalities and powers of this world
5: uh i have a question matt or or really anybody I've, I've often wondered this um the imagery that we find and i think it's i mean it's in hebrews it's in all sorts of different places but you just said a couple different Places there the the imagery of um, his enemies being under his feet, or specifically like the footstool imagery. What is he trying to convey, or what are the different writers trying to convey there with that image of being the Lord's footstool, uh, etc.? Is it is it like a purely pejorative uh, or, or sort of like negative kind of imagery? Or I, I just would like to help some help with understanding that. It's something that's always kind of puzzled me i take it
4: as an imagery of defeat of defeating your enemy of standing over top
3: of them it kind of answers this question in general about what is being unified in paul's thought what's being reconciled what was formerly separated he states in verse 9 and 10 and the main the heart of the chapter is heaven and earth he says he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. I appreciate your question, Matt, kind of tying in Matt's use of the Psalm there, because I think that's it. I mean, like that Christ made the earth his footstool could be seen as subjection but it's also one of unity it brings the two together that you got heaven which i guess people would generally assume anything that's from god is coming from heaven and it's it's real and good and uh earth some sort of the natural dualism that may be there or implied christ shatters it by by unifying them all or, or, or announcing and revealing that heaven and earth are indeed summed up in him so i think that's the footstool imagery maybe it does reflect sort of a a unity that you know footstool is no less uh, a thing i mean it's an it's an important thing just like the foot is important i guess but the point is the unity what do y'all think of that yeah the the footstool imagery to me brought to mind a powerlessness of the of the enemies over you if you're if you're willing to put your feet on them so that would be the the unity there that you're talking about uh, or at least you brought that together for me. I don't know in general more of, of the biblical studies, you know, question of where that comes from in Psalms and where else it's used. It does seem ring to me of passages, especially in Paul. I think he ends Romans 11 this way. And no, it's in Colossians of that just Christ is all. And that seems to be a part of this as well.
5: Yeah, the, the Greek word is uh, hippopodeon, which is just like underfoot. underfoot in English, right? Which I I do think that there's definitely the connotation of sort of a military conqueror, you know, sort of putting his enemies under uh, his feet for for sure. But I guess I was always a little suspicious too that this class is, you know, as like all Paul's classes are, you know, always have the theme of peace and unity and things like that. That is part of, I think, St. Paul and his economy. Uh, right uh, is of unity and peace and things like that but uh, maybe like Paul's I, I liked what I don't know if it was Irenaeus but the sort of analogy with the progressive sort of progression of a human being you know the the apokatastasis or whatever you want to call it that that, it requ- that first there really is the defeat of the enemies there really isn't trampling them underfoot through love through peace through the gospel of peace through a vanquishing of his enemies through love of peace, where they're utterly vanquished and conquered, and come to naught. You know, that their their violence and their divisions and different factions and all these different things are exposed for the lie that they are. That's the first step towards hopefully something better.
2: Uh, y'all's comments made me um, think of Philippians 2 as almost a parallel passage where, yeah, you know, it describes the humility, of course it's talking in the concept of unity, but the parallel of Christ's humility would sort of be going back to those verses in 10 and like verse 10 in Ephesians 1 that Brian was talking about, but then it ends up with him being exalted, kind of raised up above everybody. Like it says at the end of Ephesians 1 and then every knee, you know, everybody's bowing and worshiping him. And maybe that's the parallel idea to being his footstool. It may actually be the, you know, the humility of us, Bowing and worshiping him, the whole cosmos.
5: Yeah, I think that's it.
6: I'm thinking of like a, a thread that's stitched into a cloth, and this word power. It's like a reflection of this idea of participatory. Tracing that word of that term power. It's just similar to the, re- the working or the power that was involved in the resurrection, and it traces it up through. Christ, who is head over everything, and this word for, everything for the church, his body, his fullness, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him. Does that refract or turn us back into this, like moving up through all these powers, and the church is his body, who fills everything? Now, can that be thought of as a present moment, fills everything in every way? I'm trying to capture this idea of, participation and power in this description something that's i'll say can occur or should occur or does occur in in the day-to-day
5: no i think i mean maybe just in a real um what brought it to mind for me what you were just saying is is um and not to sort of beat this horse to death but i mean you know the whole idea of participation power and the footstool all three of those things sort of come together quite nicely in the cross don't they that That the cross is the ultimate footstool for christ's feet i mean quite literally right he his his enemies are at uh, as he's raised up on the cross he's sort of triumphing over his enemies in a very particular moment in time right on the cross where his enemies are quite literally uh, at his feet he's you know he's triumph triumphed over him in the power of the cross and calls us then to participate and you know likewise in a sort of nonviolent laying down of our lives the way we subdue the powers uh and make them our footstool in as much as we imitate his cross making you know even our enemies a footstool then for our feet as we participate in his sufferings you know in other words like we can get real abstract but clearly the footstool is you know the the, at the very least you know you're sort of being raised up in, in some way right but the way that our lord is raised up is on the cross
6: i'm just wondering if we can tie into this the last part of this chapter is sort of like a, a resource i mean we and we've all different times have sort of like reached the end of our ropes in different ways i'm just wondering if there's a connection overlay underpinning with this idea of power and fullness and uh, head over everything for the church can we think of that as a resource or can we allow that to be a resource that actually is there but we don't know the uh, actual the process of
1: if we go through just i'm just pointing out the obvious that the passage that matt read is it political well apparently the power pertains to politics is it connected to nations well Mm -hmm. clearly it's connected to nations is it earthly well it clearly pertains to the earth what's the focus it's on the defeat of death and so i think in our explanation or the answer to your question jim uh that the way that the christian power works and this is kind of the john howard yoder look at you know it's a kind of jujitsu understanding as you get in philippians through a a subordination you know Paul and Jesus are going to subordinate themselves to the powers and in subordinating themselves in the way they did, this doesn't mean they obeyed the powers. It means that they defeated them. That is that the power that is wielded by all of these entities is the power of death, literally the power of armies, the power of nations. The ultimate power is the power of death and where resurrection addresses then the defeat of the powers i think is its defeat of the centrality of death and that uh we can we make a stake on the other side of the the way that the principalities and powers function
5: yeah i guess we could uh we could float off pretty easily into abstractions but i liked what you'd already said you know that well what is it that the cross recapitulates for the church well power politics ethics, right? Peace. In other words, like, there's real-world, concrete things that, that the cross recapitulates in our human being, in our, in our sort of way of being human. It's changed. It's restored. You know, all those different words that we talked about. So that the cross recapitulates the way that the church is supposed to think about power, the way it's supposed to think about violence, the way it's supposed to think about the state, or, or however you could just go through a million different ways
1: and i I think until we we do the walter wink move until we do the john howard yoder move the answer to your question is a very practical answer there's a way of engaging the powers that defeats them and we have that capacity and that's the you know that's the picture it's a the david bentley hart translation here far above every rule and authority and power uh and then he has ordered all things under his feet that is he rules that the thing that is disordered is the futility, the, the subjection to death and futility. That disordering that is there in the human realm that infects the entire cosmic order. We can't. There's a kind of mystery here uh, as to how it infects it, but is there any question that human failings are cosmic in their consequences? in terms of ecology, in terms of human disease. I mean, some of it is easy, we can see. Oh, yeah. But some of it we may not completely comprehend. But apparently the universe is fashioned in such a way that it is built around our ability to affect and interact with, to order and dominate and misuse. And that then shows itself in the various disasters that we, that we deal with, and that then is being reordered. So it is a present tense thing. I think it's something we exercise, but obviously not in the fullness of that. You know, the, the fullness of it is that picture in Revelation where heaven comes to earth. What's
5: amazing is that he rules from the cross that does that's so counterintuitive you know that we would say we would normally just make the move and say well no, he rules in the resurrection and the ascension and stuff like that right but that he rules in his incarnate ethical life he rules you know all the way through but but quite specifically then this is a great mystery that he rules from you know in and through and from the cross as lord he is high and lifted up in isaiah's vision that you know on the cross and rules from there. That that's a recapitulation of everything we would have that's foolish to in, in, in the world's eyes. How could you rule from the cross? That's where that's where slaves and, and rebels go to die. That's that's proof that Rome rules, right? The cross should be proof that the state rules. But the recapitulation in Christ is actually that's the place where God rules. And it's interesting to me that somebody
1: like Hippolytus and I think he's typical of the early church, pictures the cross as kind of the beginning of the incarnation, which sounds odd. But of course, the idea is that it unfolds backward and forward. So that instead of talking about the virgin birth as the inauguration of incarnation, Hippolytus talks about the cross and that it goes backward in time. So that here is the completion of the incarnation. After looking at all the material and considering a nonviolent understanding of the atonement, hope everybody has an under uh, that that's something you get between the difference between a violent and nonviolent atonement. What are the significance of the words grace and peace and the interaction of these two terms, in especially as it involves? real world conflicts.
2: I started out with uh, some initial thoughts. I said peace is commonly thought of as a cessation of hostilities. When countries are at peace with each other, it is the opposite of being at war. I think an understanding of peace would start with this as a very limited but possibly useful definition. It is a limited definition because it doesn't account for the methods used to obtain peace. The Pax Romana was a type of peace and the use of atomic weapons brought a type of peace between the United States and Japan. However, both of these were imposed by the use of violent power. Historically, that type of peace will eventually lead to retaliation and rebellion. Unpeaceful methods do not lead to a true peace, even if they lead to an apparent cessation of hostilities. Likewise, in our personal relationships, we often enforce a type of peace if we are in a position to intimidate or coerce that is not at all peaceful. And then on grace, I said grace seems to be at least in part the method of true peace. Grace generally costs the one who gives it something. To have grace is to hold the attitude that the object of your grace has value, and it is worth the cost of whatever it is that you are losing or laying down to give grace to the other. It may be pride that has to be let go. It may have a physical or a material cost. It may be a lost opportunity It may be a downgrading of social position or status. Grace costs God something, even when God is seen as out of time. And we talk about the eternal Christ and the incarnation as a fact of who God is, as much as something he has done, there is a giving up or maybe a laying down that costs not just something, but everything, as is evidenced in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, are seen in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. Grace is the way to peace, and it has a cost. And then exploring the text with those thoughts, I've said following his blessing of peace in verse 2, Paul then defines peace in verses 7 through 10 using the language of redemption, forgiveness, and unity. In verse 7, redemption and forgiveness are activated by Jesus' blood in accordance with the riches of God's grace as opposed to the satisfying of God's wrath. And this thought is then paralleled with his will and his good pleasure purposed in Christ. He finishes this incredible thought with cosmic unity again in Christ in verse 10. This is true peace, not a peace between man and God that is imposed or compelled, but a peace provided from God for man from the powers, as Wink would describe them, good, fallen, and redeemable, that are at war with us and opposed to peace. I believe the powers that Link describes are accurate descriptors of the power structures of a fallen world that needs redemption and that our social institutions, nations, families, and all relationships are ultimately redeemable. But I also firmly believe the fall of these institutions is dependent on the same deception that Eve was subject to in the garden. The serpent deceived me and I ate in Genesis three seventeen. The power structures that the fallen powers operate under is a lie. Ergo, they are fallen. This is a deception that humanity has bought into. It is the lie stating that power is exercised in violence and coercion and that fear can lead to love. It follows or maybe is preceded in the lie that God is stingy and demanding and that there is a better way to live than the way he has shown. It gives rise to non sequiturs such as the war to end all wars and the horror of the rack and the stake and the cross. It denies the actual principles that the cosmos was meant to articulate the true power of love, which doesn't take, but instead is actuated in self-giving. There was one there in the garden who misrepresented God to Eve, the liar behind the lie, and she was deceived and believed the liar and the lie, and so do we, and we have no recourse but to believe it without the revelation of Christ, uh, as in John eight forty four, who demonstrates what God truly is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The peace that Paul is suggesting is a peace from the powers, and it is peace and truth, As opposed to the hostility of the lie, it is provided by God through Christ by grace. I think that the power of the lie has to be overcome for peace to come. And the lie was answered, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 9, when he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Christ is the source of peace. Christ is the answer to the lie. Christ in his completely unanticipated and ultimately unpredictable way of exercising power and love. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him fills everything in every way? Said, I pray with Paul that the eyes of my heart will be enlightened. Peace is the truth about the way God is, and grace is how He achieves it.
3: My
1: my initial reaction is is that it's a real world peace. It's not just some spiritualized idea or concept. It's not just hope you do well and eventually you know it'll come. That it's an enacted piece. Yeah, I, th- I thought your a- answer was excellent and fulsome. Uh, and, and gets at the idea that uh, grace and peace, you know, we can just kind of write that off. But I think Paul is saying, oh, this marks the theme. This is what Christianity is about, in that that's included in this greeting. So much so that I think, you know, this goes back to our discussion. What's being described, and as you bring it out, are two is an ontology, a different economy, uh, and so to have grace and peace is a, is a different order of understanding. All I'm right, looking we'll forward
2: to next week. Really, okay. Yeah.
1: I'll try to. I'll I'll just let's just take some time. I'm going to publish a blog tomorrow. Well, I'll publish it on Thursday, and I'll run this down in the blog so you can read it uh and then we can just begin by saying okay here's here's what it here's what this strange stuff he's talking about
2: sounds good all right all
1: right appreciate you guys good good answers and we'll see you see you next
5: week thanks guys god bless you all see everybody good night
0: forging plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth